I'm here today with Dominic Wells. He's the CEO and founder of Onfolio. Um, and they're also acquiring companies. And so I have a shit ton of questions for Dom. And um, Dom, do you want to just give us kind of a, a high level overview of Onfolio and, and what you guys do over there? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, essentially, we're a holding company. We buy online businesses. Um, we're, we're kind of following the Berkshire Hathaway model in the sense that we're, we're looking for long term holds, looking for um, sort of permanent capital as opposed to, you know, there's a lot of funds in the space where it's more like buy a business, grow it, flip it and, and rinse and repeat, uh, which, which isn't our model. Um, we, we started out really just trying to focus on buying content websites, um, but we think that space is kind of flimsy these days and we see a lot of opportunity in e-commerce uh, and sometimes SaaS. So we, yeah, we, we actually really are kind of agnostic to the business model now. So again, there's other people in the space who are doing like an FBA roll-up or a Shopify roll-up. Um, whereas we're, I guess, a bit more slatty than that. We kind of go through everything. I'm the same. We, we have been the same way. Uh, picking a thesis or, I mean, even a market. Uh, turns out it's really hard to do. We picked like no code tools as our beginning, like, yeah, we'll buy a bunch of no code tools. And then you go try and find a bunch to go buy. And there's like two, you know what I mean? And like one's too small and one's too big. And you're like, oh shit, I guess we got to change, change markets. Um, but I'd love to learn how you guys are like, how is the company structured? Is it, uh, as a holding company, you guys are just an LLC with each individual company is an additional LLC underneath it, or is it all kind of under one company itself? Uh, it's a mix. So we're actually a C corp. Um, when, when we first started, we were just on folio LLC and we were a little bit of a service provider. So I had a few websites of my own, but we basically worked with investors who someone would say, Hey, I want to buy a website off like empire flippers or something. Can you run it for me? And so we just did everything through on folio LLC and they, they would buy the website in their own entity and just pay us a fee. Um, but then we said, actually, we want to change to a holding company. We want to raise money into the holding company and eventually take it public. And so a C Corp was the way to go for that. And so we got the C Corp as the holding company that's on Folio Holdings Inc. We still have on Folio LLC below, which is like the operating entity. And then if we buy a kind of small uh like affiliate seo website we'll probably just keep that under the operating llc um but increasingly as we're buying e-commerce or SaaS, they typically they need to have their own paypal accounts their own stripe accounts uh the books get messy if they're all thrown into one so we typically spin up another llc and then yeah that's just like the subsidiary underneath where are you based at by the way i'm in taiwan um the team is all over really we've got um a team of about five in taiwan with me who are actually all americans and uh, a couple of brits and one canadian and then um the company is based out of delaware um and then we have our coos in new zealand she didn't really plan to be in new zealand but she's from there and then when the pandemic started she just you know everybody kind of went went home um we have people in Europe, people who are a bit more nomadic. Um, so yeah, we're kind of we're kind of remote, well, fully fully remote. We were like 
scratching our heads when the world started going remote first because we were like oh we've kind of like isn't that how you run business like we've always been like that so <laughs> kind of kind of funny have you did have you ever considered using a series llc for each uh additional acquisition that you guys do yeah i mean not at the moment we're kind of figuring things out with our legals and our books to be like what should we do every time we buy should we should we follow a certain thing or should we just do it as necessitates and at the moment we've just spun up an llc as necessitates but yeah i think we need to look at some of the other options as well so that we have something more um robust like more more easy to follow and something i've been batting around too for us where we bought three with just our own cash and um obviously that has that has limitations um we've been deciding whether to go a raise a fund b continue to do kind of like a sponsored deals where it's just kind of a deal by deal basis spin up an llc we find a target right we put the investors in that llc and we are the kind of like managing member of that llc so we control it but other investors have shares in it but you guys kind of went like a third way which i haven't really given much thought to which is almost that i know obviously these aren't proper funds but the terminology still holds at the gp level you guys sold like gp shares um with the outcome yeah. of trying to eventually go public which i think is awesome like i you know i have similar aspirations um but was it did you get how was that decision process to actually raise money at the gp level instead of doing like a deal by deal basis or just raising more a more traditional fund um yeah i, I wrote pages and pages in a notebook uh, i like read a lot of <laughs> if you google anything like fund versus holding company i've probably read the first two pages of google you know there's there's a, there's a good article by like the balance for example um it was really a response to how I wanted to, like all the different boxes I wanted to tick. So at the time, like I mentioned, we were working with individuals. We had about 30 or 40 websites that we were operating. And whenever there was a Google update, um, most of the websites would be fine. One or two websites would get destroyed by the update. So as a whole, we were like, yeah, this is a good business model. But if you're the individual owner of one of those websites, like you've just bought a business for like 100K, 500K, and it's being wiped out. So not good. So we needed to think, okay, how can we have everyone owning a share of the same pie so that this isn't a problem anymore? And we looked at a few options. One was a fund. One was doing individual, like we were, we played around with doing individual group buys. So say like five investors, 10 investors would pull money together and we'd buy one business and then we'd do it again. And the idea would be each one would go, instead of like putting all their money in one, they'd put like, you know, 10K in one, 10K in another, 20K in a third. Um, and that was okay, but it was, it didn't really solve the problem of, um, everyone owning the same pie because it was down to the investor's discretion and some of them only invested in one so it had the same problem uh, and it was also a bit of a logistical nightmare um, so it kind of came down to do we go with a, a holding company or a fund and I got pretty far along the fund route like I put a deck together I had a, a lawyer ready um, but it didn't quite sit right with me because I didn't want I actually think a fund is quite rigid like I didn't want to just say okay we're going to buy these types of businesses and then you buy them and then in five years you have to sell them um 
I, I really liked the idea of a holding company, but a private holding company, the problems I saw was if you want to raise additional, additional capital into the private holding company, you either have to do these continual kind of um, raises like companies like Thrasio do. And it's like, how do I, how do I value this? How do previous investors exit if they want to? Um, or what a lot of holding companies do is every time they raise money, they spin up a new LLC, new money comes into that. And then you end up with a whole bunch of different pies again, instead of everyone owning the share of one. Um, and I also had a lot of investors who were not accredited because I've been around for a couple of years and I had people that maybe had like 300K that they could invest, but they weren't accredited. So they weren't like, they weren't poor by any means, but they just couldn't participate if we stayed private. And so I realized that when I looked at companies like Berkshire, I realized, well, they've got an added advantage because they're public. People can just buy and sell their shares. So there's, there's liquidity. Um, because the feedback I got from a lot of investors is they hate, a lot of investors just hate locking up their money for like five years or 10 years indefinitely. Um, and the long the sort of conclusion is I found out that if we went public sooner rather than later, so rather than trying to get big, be a billion dollar company and then go public, we, we're just going to go public when we're actually quite small. Um, that's an acceptable path. It's a bit of a weird one. And a lot of people are like, why are you doing that? But um, for me, I was like, oh, that's actually like, why would I not do that? Like that solves all the problems I was trying to solve. Um, and it allows us to go public sooner and get a bigger valuation soon. Because when you're public, you get this arbitrage where you can buy businesses for say 4X as a private company. But as a public company, you'll probably be trading anywhere from like 10 to 20x. And so every time you buy a business, you're you, even if you don't grow it, like you're getting a better valuation your own end. Um, and there's probably a lot more nuances, a lot more considerations that I've forgotten along the way. But that was kind of my, my the evolution of my thought process when I when I sort of came up with this. Yeah, and I've even seen too, when, when public companies even just announce an acquisition and that gets priced in, oftentimes that increase in stock price makes up for the acquisition amount and then some, right? And then, and then ideally yeah. it persists. And sometimes they just pay with shares. Like I think when, uh, when Disney bought Pixar, they didn't, they didn't pay any cash. They just, they just issued shares. Um, right. And when you do that, that often initially drops the share price because you know it's like printing money suddenly suddenly there's more shares so the the price of one share drops but then once the earnings of that new business start showing up on income reports then the share price can go up like quite significantly so how do you how would the mechanism of going public work have you looked into like i don't know meeting with a spac or is would you just do like a direct listing because I was just looking on the yeah. site and you guys have, if I recall, like 38 sites, right? And it's four point some odd million. So roughly like a hundred grand per site-ish. Um, doesn't it cost like close to at least a million bucks just in, I don't know, for US-based businesses, just in the, the like legal accounting and reporting and requirements and stuff like that to go public? Um, no, I mean, you can do it for about 200k uh, if you do a direct listing we also one of our benefits is that we 
gave equity to someone who's taken like a dozen companies public before through a direct listing. So that drops a lot of the, the cost. Um, you know, a lot of people will go with a, a company that charges 100K just to put a PPM together, whereas he did it for free, basically, because we have equity. And then, um, so yeah, we're able to do it for a lot cheaper, um, but also a direct listing is, is fairly cheap. We looked at the SPAC as well, but again, we kind of started down the direct listing path before SPACs became super, uh, you know, flavor of the month. Um, but no, it's probably gonna cost us, in terms of the, the, the audit, um, the listing fee on the exchange, uh, the filings, it'll probably cost us about 250K to go public. And then around a similar amount to stay public every year, probably a bit less actually. Um, well, it actually depends because we, we, we might go public in Canada on the CSE and CSE um, actually has a cheaper, it costs more to go public on CSE, but it costs less to stay public. But we think we'll probably only be on CSE for like two years and then we'll uplist to NASDAQ anyway. And then then obviously the costs are a lot more, but by then we'll be, we'll be larger. And so our logic is the cost of going public early is more than made up for by the benefits of being public early. And then when you get on NASDAQ, yeah, it's expensive. You need to be a large company, but um, we'll already, you know, we'll have reached that stage faster by being public earlier. Um, so yeah, that, that's that's kind of the, the the logic behind it. Like being public is gonna allow us to raise so much more capital so much faster that like we have people who are like, I'm ready to give you a check for 500K, but I'm not gonna do it until you're public because I wanna see, you know, I wanna know your financials are legit. I wanna know that the SEC or if it's in Canada, uh, the Canadian equivalent, um, you know, that you're compliant with them. And as soon as I see that, like, here's the money. And so one or two, one or two deals and our increased ability to raise money will more than make up for the costs and the hassle. And going on the U S stock exchange would be too expensive to start with. Actually, no. So the original path was OTC QB, um, or one of the OTC ones, it depends. Uh, they're all kind of similar. OTC QB has got more prestige, but um, OTC Link is fine as well. But um, the reason we looked at Canada was because when you're on OTC, it's still a bit of a pain in the ass for investors to try and sell their shares if they want to, because they have to go through a, an exchange agent, uh, a transfer agent, and then they have to load their share certificates into a brokerage that deals with OTC and not all of them do. Whereas CSE, oh yeah, there's also a lockup period of like six months if, if an American buys shares or four months if a non-American buys shares. Whereas CSE, there's no lockup period if you're a domestic, if you're a offshore entity, there's, um, it's a lot easier for investors to like just load their shares into um, uh, something like a, a Fidelity account, or they can just open like a Fidelity Canada account or something. So it's, it's a lot easier for investors. There's a shorter lockup period, which again is easier for investors. So we could, we could buy someone's business and give them shares and they could sell the shares almost immediately if they wanted to. Now we wouldn't want them to, so we would probably enforce a lockup period, but 
Like there's no, there's no restrictions there. Um, and there's also a kind of what's impressive factor as well. So right now we're at around, we're probably on course for about 3 million revenue right now. Um, and obviously that, that's increasing. Like by the end of the year, maybe it will be like 500,000 a month, um, which is still quite small. Now, if you're in Canada and you go, oh, we've grown from like 1 million to 5 million revenue in a year. And then in the next year, you go from 5 million to 10 million. That's actually quite impressive in Canada. So you might get a better valuation. You'll get more attention. Whereas in the US, that's that's kind of tiny and no one really cares. Um, and so there's there's a few benefits to Canada. Um, now, some people might say, well, being public in the US is more prestigious than Canada, which is true. But that's why we're going to go to NASDAQ later. And so really, the for all intents and purposes of going public, it doesn't matter if we're in Canada or the US, because people can still see our financial statements. There'll be IFRS instead of GAAP, but that doesn't matter. They can see that we're compliant with the Canadian government. We might even still do a dual listing and be on OTC if like, if we find a lot of American investors are put off by Canada. I, I don't see why they would be, but you never know. Um, and yeah, we'll have public, we'll be publishing quarterly financials. So all of the benefits will still be there. It's just a little bit easier. Um, the SEC is a lot harder to, but they're both equally hard to comply with. So that's fine. But the SEC is just a lot like a lot more paperwork. So it's generally once you're once you're on the CSE, it's a lot easier to stay like you have slightly better deadlines with your filings and you have slightly better costs and everything. Um, and so yeah, we just figured let's excuse me, let's go to Canada and then uh, either way, jumping from OTC to NASDAQ or Canada to NASDAQ is pretty similar. You just got to fill out the necessary forms and then job done. Um, so yeah, we, to be honest, we have flip-flopped around this for a while, um, but um, uh, yeah, this is the, the path that we feel pretty, pretty happy with right now. Did you ever think about um, or consider the possibility of somebody buying the holding company as a whole and just sell that whole thing to private equity? Have you had any conversations like that? Um, no, uh, we haven't been approached either. So we haven't had to have that conversation. But um, yeah, I mean, that is an option. I think we're just trying to swing slightly bigger than, than that. You know, who knows, maybe in a few years, if we're public and a company comes along and makes us an offer that's fantastic for our shareholders we might consider that but I'm, I'm sort of thinking in like 5 10 15 year time slots and so i'm trying to build something significantly larger than that um so yeah it, it's not it's not sort of one of my exit plans but i wouldn't rule it out that's super cool i'm uh, my wheels are spinning on, on the public side of things but i want to bounce back to um just the, like the cash flow side of actually running these things. So we do SaaS only, um, just because that's the only thing I know. Um, and and what we found initially, we were like, okay, we're going to buy these things. We're going to hold them forever. It's software. You know, we're going to buy perennial businesses and grow them into perpetuity. And 
Well, we found, I mean, obviously the, the deals that we're doing are quite small, but there's actually not enough cash flow, meaningful cash flow to pay back investors with. Um, do you guys, is, is it the nature of content sites that makes, I mean, SaaS in theory has, you know, 80% gross margins, right? Maybe nine, you know, 90, if you're lucky, whatever. Um, but in practice, it's like, you got to pay people. We got to pay, we got to pay engineers, right? Product design, um, growth stuff, I guess we both have to pay for in some way, but what made you decide to hold them forever? And how did you kind of overcome that initial cash flow problem that we have? Or maybe it's just it's just us that we're we're fucking something up that we need to figure out quickly. Well, part of the reason I want to hold them forever is because it's like a snowball thing. So at the lower end, yeah, there are cash flow issues, especially as when we were really small, like you know, we might have a business, let's say we had five websites that were producing. I don't know, uh, five grand each a month profit or uh, two grand each a month profit. So the whole th that whole cluster of five sites makes 10 grand. But five sites, who's going to run them? So you hire someone to run them. Maybe that person costs you 5K. Um, so now like half the profit's gone. And then um, you do it again. And it's just, and then, but then eventually you need to start hiring two people to run three businesses and stuff. And so it is a bit of a cash flow drain. Um, so we raised money. We had, I think we raised about 800K. We got rid of a lot of our smaller sites, sold them off. And then we used a lot of that working capital to hire people and to buy bigger sites. So actually the economies of scale work really well. Um, and also bigger businesses tend to come with teams. So if you buy a business for, and it might be the same in SaaS, like a lot of SaaS businesses at the smaller range tend to be sold by founders and the founders doing all the work themselves because they're a, an engineer um and so maybe the business is making like yeah 5k a month and the founders like you know i'm going to bounce after the sale and so you have to bring in with your developer and your developer costs more than the business is doing but at a larger scale like let's say um well, I, I haven't looked at a ton of SaaS, but what I'm if it's the same as content and e-com at a larger scale, that PNL tends to include team members in it, and there's no real additional replacement costs. Maybe there's some, but what we're able to do is I've got someone whose salary is paid for because he's running three businesses. Maybe he can now run a fourth, or we can hire someone else to run one, and they they start running that business, but maybe they have capacity to run a second one. So it does. It scales a lot better. Um, the reason we want to hold them forever is because it's quite hard to find good businesses. So it's, you know, you don't want to have to sell them after a few years um, and rinse and repeat. Um, and then, you know, there's we saw a SaaS business the other day that was still sold by a single founder, but it was sold for like $30 million and it was doing, I don't know, it was a high multiple. But I would have thought that SaaS, that SaaS was churning off quite a lot of cash flow um so and then the other thing is we don't we don't pay investors we because investors will be able to buy their shares and sell them in the future they we're not paying out dividends to our investors we we have a second share class that does come with dividends actually but that's that's um that's just like a slightly different conversation but um yeah we're not obliged to pay out dividends to our investors from the, the profit of the business so we can keep like cycling the cash back into additional uh, acquisitions or, or growth. Right. So at the moment, your investors 
I mean, you guys are, their, their exit is going to be you guys executing on this going public strategy, right? Because otherwise, for most investors outside of that other class of shares, they don't really get a dividend. They have ownership, but it's, yeah. a, it's illiquid. Um, others I've seen, like Shirts, yeah. for example, they pay, um, they, they kick off a dividend. So they buy software, they buy SaaS companies, and they say, we're going to give investors some, you know, kind of profit share. And, you know, they send monthly mailbox money. But you're right, at the higher, at higher scales, like, I mean, obviously, complexity increases, uh, comes with its own kinds of problems, like the bigger you get. But broadly, the cash flow problems are a little bit easier, because at the moment, each individual company that we have is too small to support um like a developer to each so but in aggregate they can right um but i'm, I'm curious yeah. about your like your your back of office setup i mean for us i the way i think about it is there's there's going to be engineering there's no two ways about that we're going to have to have engineers on staff if we continue to buy these small little things and do a bunch of them then we need kind of like a shared resource model the obvious answer is like you said, where you go and you just kind of buy bigger businesses that can support a team by itself. And I, I, my only concern there is that there's a lot of people thinking that way. And I'm just trying to see, is there an angle for us to be kind of the go-to place where people can sell, you know, a SaaS business that's under 10K with no employees, for example, uh, and we have the infrastructure in the back end to go and operate those effectively. But I'd love to hear how you're thinking about operations. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you can do that because I don't know what your, you know, how many businesses a developer can run before you need to hire another developer and so on. But um, potentially, what? And again, this is another reason why I thought, well, I don't want to do a fund. I want to do a holding company, is because um, I saw that really the best way to make this work is scale. Um, what we're doing is there's kind of two ways of doing it really. There's like the highly centralized model, which is what say General Electric did. It's what a lot of the conglomerates did in the seventies. And that's actually what undid a lot of those conglomerates. Um, most of them were like, you know, these guys were like, they were in Korea or they were in World War II. So they were very military and they were used to a very centralized model. So they just set up their conglomerates that way. Um, but then businesses like Constellation Software, uh, Berkshire Hathaway, they're, they're all pretty decentralized. The only real centralized decision-making is capital allocation. Um, and even Constellation Software has pushed a lot of that down to the lower levels as well. And so we, we, kind, of, <clears throat> we kind of have a little bit of both, to be honest with you. So we might buy a business and install someone as the CEO and be like, okay, you're going to run it if you need to hire a marketing person and there's a budget, go hire a marketing person and we're going to sort of leave you to run the business. But we have a central, we actually have a central marketing department and we have a central SEO department where it's not as efficient to have an individual SEO working on every individual business so we have like a team of like four SEOs who will work on every business. Um, and marketing, again, there's like three or four people who will do marketing for not every business, but the ones that need marketing. Um, and it's probably going to go that way when we build out a media buying uh, arm as well. Right now, 
excuse me, <clears throat> right now we just use agencies for our media buying. Um, and then we've got me as the CEO and we've got a COO who oversees everything. And then we have kind of portfolio managers who are like mini CEOs, but they run maybe four or five businesses. It, de it depends on the business and their, their, uh, their skills and, and things like that. Um, Cause there are two ways to do it, particularly with content and e-commerce businesses. It's like, do we have one team that works on everything or do we have one team for everything? And what we've found is it's kind of, yeah, kind of a hybrid approach. Um, I would like to go more decentralized and I think it's a, a cost thing. And if a business gets really big, maybe it just gets its own team. And then the smaller ones, you have this kind of fractional sharing of resources. Um, so it's cheaper to have central and one team running everything, but they get spread too thin. Um, and so the performance actually benefits from focus. And so decentralization, I think, is better. Um, and I have to make fewer decisions and hold fewer business plans in my head. So it's nice for me as well. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Do you feel like using international labor really makes this business model work? Because I, the way that the reason I, I ask that question is because we can only afford non-U.S. based labor, right? Like right. Europe's too expensive, right? We're going to Brazil, we're going to Colombia, Mexico, right? Africa, India, China. That's like that's where we can source talent from because that is that is our price point at the moment. Yeah. Um, but it, it actually makes our margins obviously a lot a lot better. Do you feel like this? I don't know, whatever it is that we're doing is really enabled by um, using a global talent pool? I think it can be, yeah. I think, so when we started out, and I had a previous service-based business which had smaller margins, and so we had a lot of Filipinos, a lot of um, South Africans are pretty good because they're, they're basically Westerners, but for like Eastern European prices, or all previous Eastern European prices, because Eastern Europe's actually getting more expensive now. Um, and again, we also have some Eastern Europeans. I find as we're getting bigger, I'm hiring more North Americans, because even though they're expensive, and you also have things like you know, health insurance, you have to have them as employees and not um, contractors. Um, I, I, I just find North Americans tend to be, there's a bigger pool of really talented people. And so I could hire like a, a Serbian for 3K or I could hire an American, let's say for 7K. Um, or, you know, obviously some like engineers, American engineers are probably what, 12K, 15K, but um, like marketing, good marketing people maybe are 7K. But that 7K person isn't twice as good as, the 3k person they're often five six seven times as good so in terms of bang for buck actually the more the more expensive people are actually better um but for the menial jobs like the virtual assistant type work yeah like you can absolutely use um remote uh remote positions i, I actually haven't had any experience hiring from like brazil or China, uh, India, yeah, there's 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 a lot of good um, labor out there. There's also a lot of bad labor. Um, yeah. So my experience has always been Filipinos and 
uh, Eastern Europeans. And it depends on the role. Like Filipinos are really good at some things. Eastern Europeans are really good at some things. Um, so, but yeah, I think it can definitely enable a lot of um, making the model work, particularly when the margins are lower. I just went, you know what, how can I make it so that the margins are better. I was like, oh, raise money by bigger businesses and then I can hire more expensive people. That's way easier. <laughs> Just yeah. hiring people who are, who are better at my job than I am. That's the, that's the dream. Yeah. Um, and then I know we're well over time, but I just wanted to get your quick thoughts on the transition from buying content businesses to buying e-commerce businesses. Or, or, and then the obvious question for me as a kind of SaaS person, why not SaaS? Yeah, so why not SaaS? Actually, we, we, we've we looked at a couple of SaaS. There's one I looked at shortly before this call, which um, we may explore further. The main reason was initially we didn't have a developer on the team. And again, like I mentioned, a lot of these SaaS businesses are sold by founders. And it's like, okay, I'm going to need to pay all the profit out of the business to replace you. Um, so it's kind of annoying when it's like, how much is this business doing? Like, oh, 500K revenue. What's the profit? 200k how much do you pay yourself like nothing so the profit's basically nothing if i replace you then um but now we have a developer on our team who you know his salary is already accounted for he can he, he can a help us vet the SaaS and b like tell us whether he can run it and see like oh no we're going to need an engineer to do these elements and stuff so SaaS has come into play for us now um e-commerce was I always wanted to get into e-commerce and my head of SEO had a lot of experience with e-commerce. So he wanted to get into it. Um, I just didn't want to spend investors money on an experiment. Like what if I buy an e-commerce and it dies? Um, but we, we basically accidentally bought an e-commerce business because I hired someone away from an e-commerce business. And when he told his boss that he was leaving, his boss was like, oh, I, actually I want to retire. So maybe you guys can just buy the business. And we got it for basically no money down. We're just paying, we're just paying for the business over time. Um, Great. And uh, yeah, I'm loving it. <laughs> We've grown it quite significantly. There's so many levers you can pull compared to content websites. Um, like it's harder, and it's a much, much bigger cash flow sink than a content site. Um, but there's also a lot of funding available for e-commerce businesses, like Shopify Capital, for example. Um, so you can, you know, you can get some cash to purchase inventory with quite do easily. Guys, do you guys take on debt? Uh, yeah, we, I mean, obviously it depends on the cost of capital. There's some pretty attractive options out there and some pretty unattractive options. But yeah, we, um, we're not afraid of that, like within reason, obviously. But um, things like Shopify Capital helps us out because when we, when we bought the business, we got it for no money down and then we had to, uh, at the time, basically all of the profit was going back to paying the seller. And then um, we needed to make like a hundred grand inventory purchase and Shopify Capital were like, well, we'll give you 60. And so we, yeah, we took 60, we put in 50 of our own, bought the inventory and we just, we've, we've already, I think we've basically just paid off Shopify in like six months and we've grown quite significant. So it was worth it for us. Um, Growth, I think, yeah, is yeah. most of the answer to all of these problems, questions, cash flow problems, just grow. Oh, you you made a shitty purchase. It was too expensive. Well, we'll just grow into that valuation. 
Um, but I, you know, yeah. one of the uh, one of the things I find difficult to wrap my head around is when you guys are buying stuff like forever. Um, how do you get rid? Like, so here's the context: I'm battling with the idea that our business models are subject to power laws. Right, like naturally in a portfolio of X companies, you're going to have some that just win or some that just catch, right? And naturally, you're going to have some that that like just kind of suck or like you know it's you know every dollar you put in, you only get fifty cents back, no matter what you do. How do you think about like selling off the losers and kind of doubling down on the winners or or using that cash to buy new ones if you guys are trying to hold them forever? Yeah, I mean we'll we'll do that. Like one of the first things we did when we raised money was we sold off a bunch of our smaller sites that just don't make sense to hold um and if we bought a business and it didn't work out yeah we would still sell it so it's not a hard and fast rule of we won't sell it's more of a mindset um if you're thinking about buying businesses and holding them forever you look at businesses a lot differently um you're not trying to find like if you're a flipping business you might try and find something that's kind of crap and be like oh i can flip this uh whereas we're like I mean, yeah, we'll still take a flipping opportunity if we see one, but we're more approaching businesses like, could we hold this one forever? And when you ask yourself that, you tend to do due diligence a lot differently and you tend to be fastier, um, which is generally a good thing, particularly in this market. Um, what time yeah, like, frame do you consider it to be a flip? Is it a, is it a uh, six month hold, two years? I mean, I guess I would consider a flip to be, yeah, around that mark, like maybe six months, maybe 18 months or two years. Um, but it, it is interesting because let's say we, we buy a business and we grow it and it's doing really well and we think we can't grow it anymore and we've doubled the money we deployed. So potentially we could sell it, take a tax hit, but then we're going to end up with more money to buy another business, which has growth potential. So we could do that or we can just hold it forever and just cash flow it and just do like maintenance and then take that cash into another business. Um, so then the decision is like, okay, if we can't grow it anymore, how risky is it to hold? Like if we hold it and just do the bare minimum, um, is it gonna is it gonna eventually die? Like, should we sell it now while while it's going well, give it to someone else who can focus on it? Uh, or can we just leave it to just chug along and do its own thing and pour off cash? And so it kind of depends on how confident we are with that. Um, yeah, so really th those are the considerations. Now, if we think we can't grow it anymore, we don't wanna deploy any additional cash into it because we just get bad ROI, but we don't want to hold it because if we do nothing with it for six months, eventually it's going to like just die. Then yeah, we'll sell it. Uh, and then, but the, yeah, the, the idea is it's more of a mindset thing. So if we tell people we're flipping businesses, they come in to invest and they're like, Oh, so you're going to, when you sell these businesses, are you going to share the proceeds with us? And, and we're like, no, no, we're, we're doing like a permanent capital. We just keep rolling the money up. It's much more tax efficient for everybody as well. Um, but um, so yeah, we're not going to rule out selling it. If you guys, so if you guys, so when you sell us, if you create a software company and you go to sell it, generally speaking, that's not capital, 
um, generally, right? Uh, I mean, you know, this isn't tax advice, blah, blah, blah. But if you buy a SaaS company, it is capital, right? You can depreciate that. And then when you sell it, it's also capital. But why is it more tax efficient if you sell it and roll it up versus sell it and distribute it? Particularly in an um, LLC. Well, C-Corp too. I mean, well, the C-Corp, I guess you're just paying corporate tax and then you would have to pay the double hit if you dispersed yeah. it. Is that what you mean by more tax efficient? Yeah, I, I was thinking more like we get the ROI within just by keeping the cash within the business and um, growing it and growing it and growing it. And then when a seller sells his shares, like he just gets that tax hit once rather than every time we sell a business. But I... Uh, probably don't know enough details about that to try and answer it but um just my understanding is that um it's better to just keep read maybe that's maybe the i'm confusing selling a business with not selling one but essentially paying dividends out for example versus just redeploying that capital over a long period and then investors sell their shares at the end of it that's more tax efficient. But in terms of selling businesses, I'm not actually sure the finer details. So uh, I may have answered that a bit wrong. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, there's just many other reasons why we we don't want to have that like flip mindset. Um, yeah, that's just, it's just generally how we're approaching it. But that, you know, again, if, if we see a business that we're like, you know what, we should just sell this one, then we will. Um, so it's not, it's not against the rules or anything. Perfect. Well, Tom, I, uh, really appreciate your time. This has been, uh, tremendously helpful for me. I think I extracted a lot of really useful, useful things and, uh, confirmed some, some thoughts that I had had about our next moves and, and such. So I really appreciate you being open and, you know, best of luck going public. That's so cool. Yeah, I, thanks. I, uh, it's been a good chat. I, I like the structure of this podcast. It's just kind of like grab a coffee and chat about stuff. So I appreciate right. I appreciate you inviting me on. Right on. Well, take care. Where can uh, where can people find you? Or is, are you not uh, are you not that kind of guy? No, unfortunately, I am. <laughs> I'm, pretty, <laughs> I'm pretty responsive. Um, yeah. So obviously, the website is on folio.co, um, and I think we found each other on Twitter. So I'm Twitter's always a good place to approach me. I'm at team on folio. Um, but yeah, if anyone goes to the website, fills out the contact form, that'll, that'll find its way to me if anyone wants to chat as well. So either of those two things are a great place to find or follow me. Great. Well, thanks so much, Tom. I really appreciate it. Have a great rest of your day.